Welcome to the Sportsman's Voice Podcast, your inside connection to outdoor legislation. From the beltway to policy happening your way, we're covering it all. I'm your host, Fred Bird. Join us as we explore public land access, wildlife and fisheries management, Second Amendment rights, the triumphs that shape our nation, the sports we all love, and the stories that fuel our passion for the great outdoors. This is the Sportsman's Voice Podcast. This week's Sportsman's Voice Roundup features Tennessee looking to make some changes on deer and turkey, Arkansas invests in private land conservation, an update to the sweeping gun control package in Massachusetts, and Nevada celebrating a new advisory council. Let's get into all of that now. That's right. This is the Sportsman's Voice Podcast. I am your host, Fred Bird. Thanks so much for tuning in. Before we get to this week's guest, let us check in on the stories happening across the nation with this week's TSB Roundup. So in Tennessee, uh, turkey and wild uh, white-tailed deer specifically, they're seeking public comment on adjusting seasons, uh, specifically for turkey, looking at public comment on bag limits, ranging from one to three birds, season length, uh, season start date, and then potentially getting input on fall seasons and regulations there. Uh, white-tailed deer and turkey, especially wild turkey in our country, biggest success story, conservation success story in our, in our country. Almost nearly uh, extirpated from the landscape, both whitetail and, and turkey, but especially the turkey. They've been re- reintroduced, rehabilitated, in their natural environments, their their traditional home ranges, and then brought into states where they weren't found. Anyway, 49 out of 50 states has huntable population. Wild turkey, uh, with the different subspecies being available. Canada, Mexico also boasting wild populations of huntable wild turkeys. Problem with the turkeys has been, as of late, if you are a turkey hunter, you know this, certain parts of the country, Tennessee, have experienced population declines. Those in the know, biologists, policymakers, uh, people in the turkey world, obviously trying to figure that out. But in the meantime, trying to adjust for hunting pressure. It's one of the one of the variables in this very large and unknown equation. At least you can't solve for all the variables. Certainly, whether Cold springs, wet springs, uh, influencing turkey recruitment, hunting pressure, nest predation, uh, plenty of good studies on that. Habitat, nest phenology, you know, uh, some great studies on, on hens and, and, you know, repeat areas of whether what contributes, what influences uh, good nesting habitat, if, if, there is, if there is patterns, if there is something on the landscape that, that's good. So anyway. I'm getting kind of wonky on this because, as you guys know, I'm I'm a big turkey nerd. Um, it, it, these are hard hard conversations to have, and you have these areas where traditionally you have um, generous bag limits, generous uh, season lengths, uh, and even to that 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 affect fall seasons. And having these conversations to look at downgrading those bag limits and and season length, and, and should we fall turkey hunt at all? So many rabbit holes to go down there. But at any rate, not to get heavy on the turkey stuff, but the crux of this is Tennessee's looking to make some changes. 
and they're seeking public input on that. So um, and as it concerns the whitetail, they're looking at adjusting their muzzleloader season. It looks like everything else is going to stay the same. Looks like they're gonna they're looking to draft gun season lengths ranging from three to four weeks in more restrictive model to five to seven weeks in more liberal model. Draft bag limit for antler deer ranging from one to two deer and antlerless deer ranging from closed season zero during the gun season in a restrictive model up to three per day in a more liberal model. Again, none of that's set in stone, but certainly an opportunity to be involved as the agency is seeking public comment there. So you're in Tennessee, be involved. This is cool. Arkansas invests in private land conservation. Building on the Midwest's recent themes surrounding voluntary conservation opportunities for private landowners, Arkansas recently invested $3.5 million in the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission's 2023 Conservation Incentive Program. It highlights the steps that the states are taking to promote conservation of our nation's public trust resources on private property. In states like Arkansas, where most, more than 90% of the lands are held in private ownership, these investments are critical. The successful conservation of the resource you all enjoy. Incentives to, uh, to keep land open, I think, is at this point a smart play. Here where I live, we have concurrent use laws, people with large tract of private land. Uh, they get a tax break for keeping their land open to outdoor recreating, and that includes all forms. Still need to get written permission to to trap. But as far as hunting and angling go, they are open to that. And that's great as, as more and more land becomes posted, privately held, permission not granted. Uh, you know, why not work with these landowners? Give them tax breaks, incentivize them to keep, keep these open. Eventually, eventually we're going to run out of space. And that's a, that's a terrifying thing to contemplate. So good deal here in Arkansas. Certainly this is something uh, in states where you don't have land sharing traditions like here in the Northeast and other, some other remote parts of the country where most of it's locked up. I think this is a good way to go, at least for now. You, you hope to encourage people and educate them that Allowing management, allowing conservation man, uh, professionals and managers to teach, educate landowners uh, the benefits of doing certain things on their land, allowing access, allowing management of, of game species, allowing non-game species to flourish if they have good habitat or can improve that. Uh, it's all good stuff. So Arkansas doing it again. So an update to the sweeping gun control package in Massachusetts. You guys have heard me report on this earlier on earlier shows, uh, 120 plus page anti-firearm package going through the Bay State process. It, so the update is it, it, it went to a, a vote, floor vote in the Massachusetts House. That passed and has now moved on to the Senate where the Senate will either take it up or craft their own, uh, that's in the process, TBD on a date. It was great to see Massachusetts Legislative Sports and Chicago's co-chairs uh, vote against that, and Representative Nicholas Boldaga uh, got up and, and, and gave testimony. It was a, a really well done. 
Representative Angelo Amelia and Representative David Vieira were three of the 38 nays. Um, but as, as said, this was an uphill battle, 120 yays. So certainly great, grateful for those 38 nays. Uh, we, could, we could stand to use some more uh, there in Massachusetts to help with this. And as the, the issues we've, we've talked about here before, I mean, aside from all the insane regulations and Second Amendment issues we're, we're talking about for the sporting community, land access, we're talking about young sportsmen, 21 and under, having access to very standard firearm platforms, semi-automatics. All semi-automatics would be prohibited to folks 21 years and under. So, you know, good duck gun, good semi-auto turkey gun, these would all of a sudden become illegal. So as this continues through the process, we will update you. It is going to take quite the grassroots movement. Uh, the, the police association, I think it was a chief's association, unanimously came out against this. And even that hasn't swayed legislators. So uh, again, a huge uphill battle in Massachusetts. We will update uh, when we can. But um, if you were a Massachusetts fan, yard signs, going down to Boston, whatever you got to do to get involved, get involved with the local uh, rod and gun clubs. They're very active in this. As always, being a participant in your backyard will help. Uh, if you just sit on the couch and hope someone else will do it for you, you're going to lose, you're going to lose big. And that's, you know, the unfortunate truth of all this. Heading to Nevada. Good news here. New advisory council has been formed, formalizing an official advisory council uh, to state legislative sportsman caucuses provides caucus members with a direct line to their outdoor sporting constituency uh, that can deliver valuable insight to policy as it relates to conservation and our shared outdoor sporting heritage. It's a great, great way to organize uh, and get everyone's input here. All, all stakeholders, all people with an interest. We all have these organizations in our states, bringing them together. And giving them a voice is, is wildly important and is able to get stuff done. If you don't have an advisory council in your state, it might be a good time to speak with legislators of, of your sportsman's caucus and make your, your wishes known. Organize the, the leaders, organizations in your state. The new advisory council is already hard at work and is already planning a legislative caucus meet and greet in late November in Las Vegas, being able to do field trips, educational seminars, just all around, just opening eyes and minds to what's going on and just, you know, people learning about this stuff for the first time. Uh, as we get into this week's program and topic, I mean, some of you may be hearing about this topic for the very first time. Uh, and that topic is we're going to talk about is, uh, is, is animal personhood. We reported on a bill in the last episode episode in Washington. Uh, it, was, it was so uh, interesting to me, the topic of it, and wondering how many people actually know this is a thing, uh, that we decided to dedicate a whole show to it. So wrapping up this TSV roundup, we are going to get into this week's show. We welcome in Marie Newmiller, our senior coordinator in the Northwestern States. Bob Matthews, our senior coordinator in the Great Lakes states, and we're going to dive into animal personhood. 
it's a pretty wild concept to to put your wrap your mind around if 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 you're not in that headspace well let's get into it how about it look we had a great conversation let's get into it let's tee up marie bob let's go so we are joined by my colleagues today on the program uh Bob Matthews, Senior Coordinator in the Great Lakes States, and one of our newest team members, Marie Newmiller. Did I say the last name right? Yes, you did. Okay, very good. I was nervous about that. Senior Coordinator in the Northwestern States. Uh, pretty easy region, right? Oh, yeah. Very easy. Not without its challenges, which is which is why we're here today. So, um, Marie, if you caught a, a recent, uh, our our tsv sportsman's voice publication epub that i encourage all of you at the end of every show to uh to go to congressional sportsman.org and sign up for that free publication that comes out every monday at 5 p.m roughly um marie did uh, an article on wildlife and stakeholders uh it was a super interesting article the obviously the northwest has a lot going on not so much in favor of the sporting community and uh, my colleague bob who joins us uh, out of the Great Lakes states, uh, recently had some success thwarting wildlife personhood in the state of Illinois. So, welcome both of you. Thanks so much for carving the time out of a very busy day as we as we head into uh, the month of December and and what is going to be our annual NAS summit. That's a very busy time for our team as we put the finishing touches on that great event that uh, this year is held in Dewey Beach, Delaware. So, um, you know. Let's start in, in, in Washington, Marie. What what exactly here is, is happening? I know at the end of October, the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife Commission was was having a discussion about the proposed draft uh, consideration of the policy. Was there any results that came out of it? And then kind of go into that, what that means for the state of Washington. So this has been a long effort, the draft conservation policy at our commission, and it's been a long debate. Uh, they were supposed to take a vote on it in October, but it's actually been delayed. And in part, that's due to the amount of comments they've been receiving, uh, not just from the tribes, but also from the hunting community. Um, hunters and fishers, pretty much the whole sportsman's community has come out in force against some of the language in that policy that they feel like comes close to granting personhood to wildlife in the state. All right. And we even had a commissioner during a presentation in August by Dr. John Organ on the North American Model of Wildlife Management, posed the question, why is wildlife property of the state, why is it, why would we consider wildlife property at all? And that, that whole conversation is kind of what prompted that article because I started to dive in deep into that, that question and what would happen if we took away that, that property name for wildlife. And... So what would happen? Well, I mean, a lot of our wildlife is managed under the public trust doctrine. And if wildlife is no longer property to be managed in trust, what is it? How do mm -hmm. we manage it? Can anyone manage it then? Like you, you're changing the whole legal framework around wildlife, conservation and management. So it would kind of upend even our state law names wildlife as property. So it creates an interesting conundrum that throws it all for a big loop, I guess. So the whole idea, and this seems like a, I guess a clever workaround, whether it's intended to be that or not, it, it certainly ends up that way uh, for the non-sporting community. That's my polite way of saying the anti-crowd, right? So if you put this label or give these permissions or whatever, this personhood, which sounds 
contradictory in and of itself when you're putting that personhood on animals, but we'll, we'll progress. What does that mean? Now these, now these critters, they have rights. So what does their rights look like? There was a case in Connecticut, Public Act number 16. This is Desmond's Law. That was actually passed in 2016, which allows for I get more or less people to report neglect to animals. And then a pro bono lawyer is attached to that case to, to advocate on the behalf of said animal. Now, it's not a far stretch in our space to say, well, if, if your person down the street can, can have a concern about Fluffy the dog being tied out in negative you know, degrees and, and feels like that's a, a situation neglect, how do they feel about me shooting a whitetail? Then what does that mean? Am I going to get charged for murder one for harvesting, legally harvesting a, a white tail? Yeah, Fred. The, Bob, take that. The background question. there, um, you know, that's that's kind of the bill that I worked on in Illinois. It wasn't quite, you know, the wildlife personhood that I'm hearing from you, Marie. That sounds like an absolute nightmare. But I think that there's different challenges to to what you were talking about there, Fred, with Desmond's Law, in that that has already gotten some traction. Like you said, it, it's that framework has been passed in Connecticut and in Maine as well. And to my knowledge, that started from the Michael Vick case. That was really the first example of a legal advocate being appointed um, into a courtroom to represent animals. You know, it was a high-profile situation uh, where there were there were a lot of dogs at play, and so the judge appointed a woman to step in and just give recommendations for each of those dogs. And that really sparked a idea for these extreme animal rights groups um, that you're that you're referencing, Fred. And that's where Desmond's Law came from. It was about 10 years later that they were successful um, in, in actually getting a law that creates that framework. So I think that there's, there's significant challenges like you talked about um, with where that goes next, right? Because they did get their foot in the door in creating opportunities for animals to have a sort of quasi-personhood, and that gives implicit rights that just really creates some problems for, for sportsmen and women. And I think that it's a good, this is a good point to jump in, you know, when we're talking about dogs, which are baked into this conversation because of, you know, that Michael Vick case and where these Desmond's Law goes. Hunters have such a strong relationship with animals, both dogs who, you know, they get to share the field with, doing something that that dog was bred to do since, you know, something that humans have done with dogs since we were knocking rocks together. That's exactly right. And, you know, that, that relationship between a hunter and a dog is incredibly strong. And that relationship between the hunter and the wildlife that he's pursuing or that she's pursuing is equally as strong. You know, there's there's not a responsible hunter that um, is going to be comfortable taking a shot or or trying to take an animal that they're not confident they'll be able to. So I think this whole argument that these these groups make, where where hunters are not, you know, they're not responsible or or they're they're not um, conscious of of animals. I think that's that's totally unfounded. That's hunters hunters are exactly the the side that is is conscious of the value of an animal yeah i'd agree with that moreover you know when it comes to the dog topic i mean 
I think what we have is a couple of generations, maybe probably three generations removed from when you had traditional. The majority of, of a community would be in, in, in and of those traditions, right? That their, their uncles, their grandfathers at all would go out into the field. They go to whitetail camps throughout most of the country. They would go upland hunting with their, their rabbit dogs, their, their upland bird dogs. And this was very common. And we're so far removed from that in 2023 that, I mean, I use the I use the example of 9/11, right? We're a whole generation removed from the tragedy that was 9/11. And and there's this whole group of kids that just don't get it like they have no idea what happened on that day. So I'm drawing a correlation here. It's kind of an extreme example and I don't mean to go back to that, but again, the point is you have this generation over generation after generation removed from these traditions, so there is no value system there. And when they look at this and they see dogs being kept in a certain way or being trained in a certain way or being worked in a certain way, they do it through the, you know, the, the game my kids play, googly eyes, right? They have these weird lenses and they look through it through like a, a Disney filter. And again, once again, we had this really awesome opportunity to educate and bring people to the field and, you know, show them, but they have to be receptive to that. Yeah. And they have to be willing to come out there and do that. So, you know, again, the leading horse to water and if they're not willing to drink, but you know, they, they come up with these half-baked ideas. You end up in a situation that you had to fight and that Marie now finds herself. And Marie, where are we? So you said the, the votes been been pushed back right now. What are, what steps are being taken? What what shape is Washington? And I know, I think what Oregon just south here was trying to eliminate hunting and fishing altogether. So, I mean, you're, challenge, you're not without your challenge in the Northwest. Right. So in Washington state with that draft conservation policy, at least that's been pushed back at least until December where they'll begin discussing that again. It sounds like the commission is working on redrafting that. And there are some commissioners that are actually scheduling meetings with the sportsmen's community to try and get more input and understand where the disconnect is between that language. Um, some of the commissioners, not all. Oregon has that ballot initiative that keeps popping up IP3, I think is the current iteration of it that would grant protection to all animals, not just wildlife. They would end hunting and fishing, ranching, and pet ownership because breeding would be illegal. So what but are I feel the like in, right... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to step on you. Oh, I was just going to say that I, I feel like in Washington State, if, if they were to do what some commissioners want and name wildlife as being not property of the state, you are, in essence, enacting IP3 in our state. Yeah. Because if it's not property, what is it? Is it a person right, right. or does it become property of the landowner? But then again, it's still property. So you are granting it that personhood that protects it from any use. Which is an interesting wrinkle of when, if you're going to grant these, these different species, these different uh, organisms personhood, and then they're your property, I just think that's a weird twist on it. Uh, uh, the society there, and I don't think that's really well received. But again, that's probably a branch to go down uh, another time. I, I what so if this happens, right? So it's happened. We we talked about in Connecticut and uh, to an extent here in Maine, and you know what what rights are guaranteed to to these animals? I I I personally do not know. So I'm asking. I don't mean to put you on the spot if you don't know. But what is there a simple? Do they have a bill of rights? Do these animals now uh, are they guaranteed food, water, shelter, and not getting shot? Yeah, I I don't know where that would go if that were to happen. Luckily, with the current activity in Washington State, we do have state law that declares wildlife 
property of the state to be managed by the department. What the commission's working on right now would just be commission policy, so it can't supersede the law. That doesn't mean they can't take steps to try to change the law, but at least we have a bit of a barrier there currently. Um, but I, no one has proposed what comes next. Mm. If wildlife is no longer property of the state, what does it come in? I, I think they aren't looking far enough ahead. If you take away that whole public trust doctrine, what does that do to the environment or the, excuse me, the Endangered Species Act? Now, how do we protect those species that we've decided need extra support? If they're not property that the government needs to manage on our behalf, what happens next? And I don't think that's been talked through, at least not that I'm aware of. Doesn't sound like any of this has been talked through except for like a, a superficial wish list for, for the non-sporting crowd. If this, if this were to, to go the, that way and, and if Oregon gets their wish list, I mean, what's part of that further conversation, Bob, is you know, what's the funding mechanism look like? How do, all right, so now we're taken out of the equation. How, how are these, these uh, conservation, preservation, I guess, at this extent, right. uh, programs getting funded? Because as we well know, it's sportsmen, it's anglers and recreational shooters, especially the rec shooters that, that shoulder the burden. Yeah. Voluntarily so. Absolutely. That's that's one of the uh, the arguments that we made in Illinois um, when that bill was introduced. So kind of some background there. Earlier this year, there was a bill introduced in Illinois that was modeled after the Connecticut law. And so it would have allowed um, a judge to appoint a licensed attorney or a, a law student to be a quote unquote special advocate for cats and dogs in um, neglect or abuse cases. So. You know, when these bills are introduced and they hit the desks of legislators in a given state, they hit our desk too. And that's really the value that CSF has because you were just talking about how, you know, what's the plan going forward? They don't, these bills don't contemplate the unintended consequences. Um, and that's where we step in. You know, we, we have these caucuses in every state and we, we have the expertise to read those bills, see what those unintended consequences really are going to be. The, the challenges that these uh, poor pieces of legislation are, are going to put in front of hunters and anglers, recreational shooters and trappers. But then we also have the relationships in the state houses where we can pick up the phone and we can explain that American system of conservation funding to a legislator who might not know. Um, you know, CSF really has that reputation across the country of being nonpartisan. You know, we don't have an ulterior motive. Our agenda is just good policy for the folks that are in the woods and waters. And so we can, we can make those, those arguments to those legislators and get these bills stopped in their tracks. And that's, that's what we were fortunate enough to be able to do in Illinois. I think it's going to rear its head again because, you know, politics, as you don't have to be involved in politics to know that they take time and, uh, you know, sometimes the first step is just to get a bill introduced and then it'll be back next year. And, you know, there might be a few few more co-sponsors. And so that's our job to to get ahead of it and, and let legislators know what these bills are, are really going to do um, for sportsmen and women. Yeah, if nothing else, man, and that's, you know, I appreciate what you're saying there and to expound on it is that the opposition, the people bringing these bills or trying to influence these bills, they're in it for the long game, yeah. man. And it's it's a challenge we have in our community as, as sportsmen and women ourselves in our own in our own ecosystems. Like 
it's so hard to like get people to stop being like emotionally reactive to to things like this or any any attack on our community. They just want to you know punch it in the mouth and handle it right then. It's like hey, your opposition is at this for a very long time and will continue to be at this. We have to adopt the same measures and encountering that and, and like you said. Uh, getting the expert eyes on it and, and showing, you know, the butterfly effect of these things that they're not, you know, just on the, on the surface of it, they may make you feel good, but here's all the other stuff to it. Bob, it, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you had a positive experience, you know, in Illinois, what were the reactions when you went to our caucus members and some other legislators to, to advocate and to educate, you know, did they have, were they starry eyed? Did they say, oh man, I had no idea. Like, when you interact, both of you, when you guys have these interactions, what are the reactions? Yeah, I, I think the easiest way to to um, bring someone around to hunters and anglers is to explain that American system of conservation funding. When you talk about the dollars that are at play um, off the backbone of of hunters and anglers, it really changes people's perspective. So, you know, it's it's can sometimes be difficult when you're approaching a bill that, you know, is the welfare of a dog. Obviously, like I mentioned earlier, you know, hunters, hunters have a, a very, very special spot in their heart for, for the dogs that, that we share a field with. But being able to explain, okay, listen, this doesn't just impact dogs. This really opens the door for threatening that, that system of funding where, you know, the reason that legislators don't have, um, they don't put a ton of money into natural resource spending bills is because hunters are already doing that for them. And so right. explaining that, you know, we need to make sure that I'm not going to be sued by a duck someday um, for trying to, trying to take a duck, you know, like this. It sounds it silly, sounds but, silly it, but this is what we're it's, dealing it's with. Not, it's not, it's something that some of these groups would really like to see. You know, they'd like to see you, Fred, wearing sure. a nice camouflage tie in the courtroom with a yeah. duck on the other side of the uh, other side of the room. Um, and you just have to explain to them that, you know, these, these forms of bills really don't do anything to better protect animals. Illinois, like every state already has, you know, they already have laws in place um, that are against animal cruelty and neglect. And there is an evidence that, you know, the, the justice system is failing to prosecute folks that that do, um, you know, heaven forbid, harm their harm, their dog or their cat. So when you when you see that and you say, OK, what that means is that these bills can really only be categorized as an attempt to. You know, create those implicit animal rights, it's a step forward, it's a step forward for those groups to say, OK, well. You know, it's a dog and a cat's day, but later down the line, this is going to be a white-tailed deer. And um, we see that with, you know, and the two ways to get things done, you know, legislatively or in the courtroom. And these groups are really taken to the courts, you know, the happy the elephant case where they're suing on, on behalf of a elephant that's in a zoo, you know, trying to get that elephant yeah, well. legal personhood. Fortunately, uh, we recently have gotten another decision uh, out of New York saying that that elephant is not a person. It is, in fact, an elephant. Fair. But, you know, it's a, it's a constant fight. And this, you, there's 167 law schools. That's my background is, is coming from the legal side of things. There's 167 law schools in the United States and Canada that have a form of animal law, 
which teaches animal personhood, which, you know, advocates against really the North American model and the public trust doctrine, Marie, like like you were um, emphasizing the importance of. There's only six law schools that teach a wildlife law that is kind of the pushback on that. And so it's not just that folks are misinformed, they're miseducated. And so as as more people are joining, um, you know, the policy arena, whether that's, you know, making policy through the courts or making policy um, legislatively, we're at a disadvantage of, you know, boots on the ground of people who understand conservation. And so that's why that's why CSF is so important in this fight um, of being, you know, one of the few voices that that are pushing back against this. You bring up the animal cruelty laws, and they, they kind of—it's the same slippery slope. Uh, fighting those, you know, the the obvious: don't beat your cat, don't run over the, you know, the dogs and stuff like that. That all makes sense, but when they're written so ambiguously, you know, naturally the trapper community, the trapping community, fires right up because even though we understand and, and as trappers, uh, pres- the prescribed best management practices that are put out there, and the technology in the 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 actual traps themselves have come so far, even in the last 20 years, that allow for non-target species catch, bycatch to be released unharmed, uh, if nothing else, just a little inconvenience out of the animal's day, uh, no worse for wear. These laws uh, are direct assault on those because you're left up to a perception and interpretation of that. So one person, like you said, things get settled in the court. And, and through and through legislation, it's really subjected to the person signing off on it and what they think is, you know, what's the legal definition? Well, I guess if a steel uh, trap comes on your leg that and it convenience you, you probably think that's that's the collector harm. And the, scientifically, it's it's not. So with that line of thought, Maria, are they writing these to be specific? And I guess that's at least in the court, which would help our case is. If you're going to have these laws, and to Bob's point, you know, most of the states already have them on the book, so why the redundancy other than you have nefarious intentions? My point, the laws, if they're specific to domesticated animals, you know, your cats, chameleons, whatever you have in your house that, that fires you up and doesn't include or specifically excludes wildlife, do we see that, or is that something we can at least advise and say, maybe you refine this. You want to have your animal cruelty law, your personhood law, as silly as we think it sounds. Here's how you, here's maybe a, a solve for both parts. Yeah, and that kind of does come up on a case-by-case basis. IP3, they implicitly state that they are trying to reverse the exemptions made into the law that allow for hunting and mm-hmm. allow for ranching. So they are trying to eliminate those exceptions. I think in Washington state, some of the things we need to look at are communicating with legislators on what the ambiguous, like these conversations are intentionally left wide open. One case we see a lot is domestic violence legislation has some very broad wording in there that could be interpreted to protect wildlife from hunting if you took it that way. But it's really hard for a legislator to come out and vote against domestic violence protections. What I like about CSF and the tools that we have is we're able to go to those legislators and educate them on how that ambiguous language could have unintended consequences, or maybe they were intended, but most people don't see that for what it is. And so we're able to help communicate that and shift that language in a way that still protects sportsmen's rights, but also allows an important bill to go through. 
So it really becomes a matter of looking at each individual piece and learning how to communicate and how to educate on what would happen as a result of that law. And that's what we've been trying to do with this draft conservation policy at the commission level in Washington State. A lot of people say, but it's a conservation policy. Aren't hunters for conservation? Yes, we absolutely are. But the way this is worded has unintended consequences that either people don't see or they don't want us to see. And so we're trying to educate on, you know, when that draft conservation policy says equitable management for human and non-human life, what does that mean? Are you tiptoeing that line of granting then some level of personhood to wildlife and where does that go? And so we keep opening those conversations and explaining why that language could be troublesome down the road. I, I, I hear what you're saying and I just, I, my brain just cannot reconcile any of this. This is just so incredibly strange uh, to me and probably the, the average person out there that is hearing this. Like I, they, most of them probably don't even know this is a thing. Like you really have to be entrenched in the policy world to even know this is out there. Again, some of the folks in our community, especially the trapping community, uh, understand what, what's at play here. But I, I just think the majority don't even know when these things just get passed. I mean, I think about voting in your local election, right, for selectmen, aldermen, assembly, whatever they're called in your, in your locale. And you're like, okay, uh, I'll vote for that guy and the rest of it down ballot. I either leave blank or I just look for an R or a D, whatever my persuasion is, I toss it. And holy smokes, you don't know what you're really voting on, which is kind of irresponsible, but it happens, right? That's the truth of it. That's, that's where we live. What's next uh, as far as trends, Bob? Do we see this cropping up in more, more and more states, or is it relegated to the Northeast, uh, some of the more blue-leaning states? Well, I will, certainly, I will certainly say that your two regions, the Northeast and the Northwest, have some challenges that I would, I'm not jealous of. But I think that this is one that at least the domestic animal side of it, I think that it's a pretty easy way for um, these groups to get their message across and, like I said, get their foot in the door. And I, I fully expect it to be back in Illinois next year. I fully expect to see it in another state. You know, who knows which one it'll be, but, you know, you, you touched on this. They, these groups are persistent and they're playing the long game. They have money and um, they can, they can, slide these into any state that they wish. So I, I don't think that, you know, this is a, this is a growing problem. It's one that isn't um, maybe as big uh, currently as some other things, but I think that it has the potential to be one of the biggest problems uh, down the road because, you know, without the, without the constitutional right to hunt and fish, um, which does exist in, in many states and uh, thanks to some of the work by CSF uh, and our partners to, to yeah. get that done. Without those constitutional guarantees that you're going to be able to to take fish and wildlife, we're going to see more things um, walking their way towards the Oregon direction. And that's because there are fewer folks who are joining uh, the natural resource side of things that are actually hunters. You know, that's going to be one of the things that we talk about at the NASC Summit. Um, I won't go too far into that, but you know, there's there's more trends that the, the the people who are getting their degrees in that field, you know, they don't own a gun. 
They don't, they don't go, they don't go harvest an animal. So that's the direction we're going. I talked about the law school, uh, disparity there where there's, you know, they're, they're teaching more people about animal rights than they are about, uh, the way that conservation works in America. And so we're certainly going in a direction that, um, that needs a group like CSF to be, to be there and, and, and stop it from continuing and to pervade our books because it it's not going away. The right to hunt and fish topic is, is wildly important. And like you said, we got, there's quite a few States where we're close to having half the States in the, in the country uh, on board with that. I know there's some ballot initiatives that are coming out here. I think Ohio, Ohio's up to up, up next. They think is on deck here that they, tomorrow they're... it's not I, so i'm working on that one so i will say that it's it's uh it's not to the ballot yet but it's at least being debated in the legislature to bring it to the ballot okay very good yeah okay and as we record this i think it's tomorrow right then i, I read that so big doings in ohio but again back to that and that's not for the listening audience again this is an opportunity to educate that's not something you're just going to call your local representative and be like, hey, man, I really uh, want this taken up. I need someone to write this law because I'm a, you know, I'm the loudest guy in the room and I need this to happen. Uh, it's a, a, then another long game, right? I mean, just getting that out there and understanding the, the, the procedures in your, your state of how, how something like that, how a constitutional amendment comes about, it's not easy for a reason. Otherwise, they do it all the time. And these constitutions would be 500 pages deep. So there is a lengthy process. There is a education and marketing campaign that goes into these. Uh, it takes a lot of resources. And by resources, we're talking cash money. And unfortunately, our community is not uh, the most wealthy as far as research because we're small. And a lot, a lot of our success is predicated on uh, nonprofits, on agencies that are already cash strapped. So you know, we face an uphill battle going against these well-funded uh, folks that just don't care for, for what we do and would like to see us have that ended. So, uh, again, to Bob's point, uh, championing that and, and working on that in your local communities and your states where you don't have it and being organized uh, is going to help thwart a lot of this because, you know, what, what once was the trappers, the houndsmen, and the bear hunters uh, they've changed tactics. This is the the new darling in the room for them. That's something that they can get a foot in, and then they're and they've done it, and they're doing it. And, and like Bob and Marie have said, uh, this is going to rear its head throughout the country because here they found another another strategy to tap into because they know beating up the houndsmen, the bear hunters, and the trappers is is old news. They can continue to do that and and stress resources for us fighting those battles, but they get pretty good pushback and we kind of have good arguments against that. And it's just a, it's a troubling, troubling strategy that they have here. And it's going to take all of us. Yeah, absolutely. That's, we have conversations all the time in, in state houses across the country. And, um, you know, a lot of it is trying to, con trying to educate legislators as well as convince them um, of the importance of the role that sportsmen and women play in, in conservation and, um, you know, you can't go out and, and enjoy the outdoors without a hunter buying a license um, or, or somebody buying some ammunition. So um, we, we just have to keep hammering away that message and make sure that uh, the legislators learn that because um, 
without without hunters and anglers, there's no hunting and angling. So um, that's that's what we're working on yeah, all the time. For sure. Uh, as we as we get to the end of our session here, I wanted to let you both have the opportunity to talk about other things happening in your regions that we can let the audience know. Uh, Ray, I'll start with you. Uh, northwestern states, if you want to dial in a little bit more, what states you uh, are under your care and talk about anything that's uh, heavy, heavy hitting stuff. Great. So I get the opportunity to work with Alaska, Washington, Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. Alaska has a lot of issues with the Federal Subsistence Board. That state's fun to work on because it's so unique from all of our other states. They have a lot of the same issues that we face, but also because of subsistence and different lifestyles out there. They have some unique issues that are a lot of fun to look at. Uh, they did just have someone, a new individual named to manage kind of that federal subsistence board. So there's a lot of efforts around that, and those meetings are always going on. I think there was one last week, and that creates an interesting thing around dual management. You have both the state and the federal subsistence board trying to manage the wildlife populations, and how do you do that effectively? In Washington state, of course, we have a, a big push on what we've been talking about today, on wildlife as property or wildlife getting personhood, kind of the ethics around hunting as a debate that is constantly going on. Our next event happening in Washington State is the Wolf Advisory Group. That meeting will take place Thursday, or Wednesday and Thursday this week. And one of the topics we are going to be talking about is wolf livestock conflict and how do we solve that? How do we work through that? Which one mm -hmm. do you give priority to? Do you give priority to the livestock and those ranchers that are raising food for people? Or do you give priority to the endangered species in that area so that always creates an interesting did i debate. read and a lot of the northwestern did I read they're state. trying to reintroduce yeah, grizzly bears to washington or they're talking about it the cascades area yeah so kind of north central washington they're looking at reintroducing grizzly bears we're already a predator rich state so it would make it very interesting here especially on management of the yeah. mule deer herds yeah. in that area because we just had several packs relocate into that same area so they've got new pressure from those wolves if you add grizzly bears in that time when they're trying to adjust to the new predator of the wolf now you add grizzly bears what does that do to those mule deer populations and <laughs> the elk in that area easy stuff easy stuff. a lot yeah. of predator rich issues yeah, yeah, in the northwestern yeah. state definitely bob how much you what's i mean we touched on one there in ohio what else has happened in your region well, I'm uh, I'm based out of Michigan, so um, you know, there's a few things that have that have happened here in Michigan that have been some big wins for us this year. There was uh, you know, a, a new firearm package that um, was rolled out that you know we were able to really educate legislators on um, on why it was bad for hunters and get some things changed in there. You know, they were gonna apply the same laws that applied to handguns to all long guns, so. You, know, you are going to be able to um, possess a, a firearm, a shotgun, or a rifle that you didn't have a purchase license for. Um, that was going to make it so that if you know, if I wanted to take somebody out who's never been hunting before, what I was going to have to say instead of loaning them a gun, I'd have to say, "All right, well, step one is you need to go buy yourself a gun," and that create that was going to create a huge, huge barrier for um, you know an, an already uphill battle of recruiting new folks into the field. 
Um, so we were able to get some meetings because of leveraging that bipartisan reputation that we have. Uh, we were able to get some meetings with leaders in the legislature and explain why um, that was going to be really detrimental, not only to hunters and anglers, but to the state as a whole. You know, hunting and angling is a, it's a $11 billion industry every year in Michigan. Supports 71,000 jobs. Does the same thing in, in every state across the country. Mm-hmm. So that was a big win to, to be able to explain um, and, and get some of those sections changed out of that firearm package, which, you know, may have been sort of, you know, a guarantee that it was going to get across the finish line. It's just how it was going to get across the finish line and, and what it was going to do to sportsmen and women. So that was a big win. Uh, just this last week, uh, another win in Michigan, we, we had capped off an almost 10 year effort to uh, revamp the commercial guiding uh, or really create a commercial guiding framework that, um, you know, is going to supply better reporting to the DNR so that they can better manage the resources in the state, um, going to create some new funding revenues for, for the DNR. And that was a big win that uh, that's going to just kind of increase consumer confidence. You know, if you're going to come to Michigan to, to try to get yourself a bear up in the UP or, you know, grab an elk, then, you know, you're going to have a guide that knows what they're doing and you're going to have the best experience that, that you could possibly have. Um, out in Minnesota, had another win that was a multi-year effort, got crossbows to be fully incorporated into archery season. That's a big R3 um, win because, you know, that's, it keeps folks who, you know, maybe aging out of pulling a bow back, um, it, it might keep them in, in the tree stand, you know, so. Or new folks coming and, in and also them a, it's a confidence booster. So yeah. I want them to have good first experience. Absolutely. You know, that, that transition from, that transition from maybe being a gun hunter to trying to get into archery, but it's in between there, or maybe someone didn't want to start with a gun. They started with a crossbow. So. Real, real solid victory there in Minnesota. Um, we've had we've had quite a few um, successful um, warts, I guess, of of legislation that that wouldn't have been so good in Illinois. They were gonna make it so that you know you could only transfer your ammunition if you were um, an FFL, so you weren't gonna be able to you know give a, give some ammunition to somebody at the range. You weren't gonna be able to let somebody shoot your gun um, out in the field. That we were able to successfully stop that. Um, there's lots of things, you know, and that's, there's lots of things that we do around the country all the time. And, you know, those are just a few, but I think next year is going to be another good year for, for sportsmen. Yeah. That, that ammo thing is, uh, is a popular one popping up, at least in some of the more unfriendly, uh, territories. Uh, Marie probably understands that as well. So that's a yeah. more interesting wrinkles. No, and, and exactly right. What we say on this program all the time is, the work we do is really the work in your state capitals, in your backyard. So um, you got two fine examples here of, of super smart, well-educated folks that are out there advocating and educating on the sportsmen and women and recreational shooters uh, of this great country and, and those states. You just heard them. And we have team members all across the country. Uh, we do great stuff on Capitol Hill and the Beltway and uh, you folks got to meet Taylor Schmitz on the last program, and you've heard from our CEO in the past on our first episode, uh, and you'll continue to hear from from all of our team. But uh, the yeoman's work, I think, and some of the most important work we do is right in our state capitals because it has a direct effect on on 
all of the sporting community. Some of the bigger things that catch the headlines, yeah, that's that's uh, I guess popular headline fodder. But again, the the grunt work, the real hard stuff, the carry is is right there in your backyard. So, and again, uh, as I say in every episode, it takes it takes our community to be involved. So knowing at least who your local representative is, at least know their name, uh, and and then participating in those in those off uh, election years. So here in New Hampshire, like every two years, we're we're voting people in and out. And if it's not the presidential um, election, it doesn't get as much attention. And that's, you know, a trend across the country. But you got to be you got to get involved in those at a very minimum. And then, you know, it doesn't take but two or three phone calls or, or uh, fired up emails to get these folks attention. They don't really hear from their constituents all that often. So when they do, it's uh, it grabs their attention. So write those letters and make those phone calls. Leave messages. Don't be afraid to do it because they definitely get them. And they will, they will listen. And really, it, it's not an exaggeration. Two or three phone calls of angry sportsmen, uh, that'll, that'll light a fire every time. So be involved. It only takes. Guys, any parting thoughts uh, as, we, as we wrap up here? Well, I'd just say thanks for having us on. Um, yeah, know, this, no, this topic is one that you know we, we talked about is, is going to continue to be a topic of discussion in our field. Um, might not be one that's on the forefront right now, but. I think that it will be in the future. So, um, good good decision to uh, to talk about it early on. I think so. Uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on. For sure, and thanks for to Marie for the inspiration. It was a very well written article. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for taking up this topic. It can be a bit of a deep dive sometimes, but it's really important. And I think to touch on what you said, having people writing their legislators has a big impact, and we saw that in Washington State just the sportsman outreach on that draft conservation policy is changing some of the language and slowed down that process that seemed like it was going too fast. And I think that's really important, staying connected with groups like Congressional Sportsman Foundation to find out about those issues and then being active when you do find an issue that you take interest in is very important. So I appreciate what you're doing to help kind of share the message of what we're working on. Yeah, for sure. Well, in our it's, state. A, it's a good platform for our team to have and, and, hit the airwaves and the, the email accounts as best we can and telling, telling all these stories, good, bad, or indifferent, but it's, that's how we're going to uh, make folks aware. If they don't want to do it for themselves, we're happy to do it on their behalf. Just do something with the information, right? <laughs> so great show, guys. Thanks for the information. I appreciate it. Thanks so much to Bob and Marie for coming on. Thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. It is like many things right now in, in the state of affairs, uh, it's just wild times, man, and wild things going on. And I still have questions. I still can't reconcile the whole thing. And I stand by just some people just have nothing to do. <laughs> uh, we are, I think we're better, better as a society and community where we're busy and we have uh, good things to focus our time on. Animal personhood is just one of those just really seems made up it just doesn't make any sense and especially to bob and marie's points of we already have i think most states already have if not all states have abuse laws for for animals and there are standards in in big ag you know uh, on on farms of how these animals are treated um so the redundancy in this just 
it stinks is what it, it stinks of, of gamesmanship. It stinks of technicalities, uh, kind of making stuff up on the fly to, to circumvent, uh, traditional arguments and then create a new one. Um, and this one's out there, man. Like I put this out there with alien existence. Like it just, somebody trying to convince the rest of us that that this is a real thing. And, um, while the, the, the aliens have yet to be proved or disproved, this one just doesn't make sense. And that's where I'm, that's where I'm sticking on it. Nevertheless, it's going to require you and the community, our legislators, when this kind of garbage comes up, that we head it off and, and do so enthusiastically. Uh, call it for what it is, highlight existing law, highlight existing regulations that already exist, and ask the question, why are we doing this if this stuff already exists? And the only conclusion you can come to is that it's an end around, like I've said, to put the kibosh on hunting and angling and trapping. That's where, that's the only thing I can settle on. But if you if you're talking to people that aren't super wonkish about this and don't live this every day or professionally uh, are are integrated into this, and you're hearing this for the first time, you're like, oh, not hurting animals makes a lot of sense. And they don't even know the stuff is already on the books. Um, our 10% or less, I get it, but it's that bigger crowd of folks that, that, that are our neighbors that aren't into it. And then we have to make sure we're letting know that this, this is bad because of. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope uh, it's inspired and intrigued you to ask more questions, to, to look out for this stuff, and then pass this information along to folks within your community. Now, if you are a member of a rod and gun club, if you are a member of a trappers association in your state, any of the sportsmen's organizations, if you're chasing turkeys, if you're chasing ducks and you're down with the deer, whatever it is, this affects the entire community. So be on the lookout for this stuff. If it's not in your state now, likely it will be. And Again, the sooner we can head this off, the sooner we can work with legislators in our state, uh, the better off we're going to be. But bet, bet this stuff is coming if it's not there yet. That's it for this week's show. Once again, thank you guys so much for having us along. Spreading the word about this podcast and sharing the information far and wide. Uh, we do our best to keep you up to date with all the latest and greatest heading in to the Thanksgiving holiday and, and, and Christmas season, not too much going on, but Oh, look out. We, we ramp up to the new year and, and things are going to start getting sporty. So, uh, we will have a lot to report on, uh, after the new year, hopefully a lot of good. And if there's not, we'll report on that too. Let's be on the lookouts, you know, get activated in your, in your area for the, for those, um, those instances where it's required, where it's needed. And um, we'll look forward to that. But in the meantime, happy holidays. Happy Thanksgiving to you guys. Hopefully you're able to get out on a 
traditional Thanksgiving hunt, if that's what you do. I know I do. It's always great to get in the woods and get freezing cold and come into a, a warm house with the smell of apple pie and, and turkey cooking or smoking, which I highly recommend if you're into the smoking of meats. There's no better way to have a turkey, in my opinion, I've, and I've tried them all. Spatchcock turkey on your favorite smoker. I happen to use Traeger. It's uh, like the old Ronco, set it and forget it. It's really super simple and makes a fine product. I'm sure any smokers probably do the same thing, but eh. Maybe another show for another time. We'll have some wild game chefs on and, and talk about uh, all the great ways to cook our our harvest because, uh, man, they are delicious and many opportunity options uh, abound. So, again, happy Thanksgiving, happy holidays as we roll into Christmas and uh, and that entire joyous season. Get safe. Uh, be Get home safe from the field. Shoot straight. Until next time. See you later. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Sportsman's Voice podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, your support is crucial, and you can help us out right now by leaving a review, filling in those five stars where available, sharing this episode with friends and family, and engaging with us socially. CSF can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and X, formerly known as Twitter. Together, we can protect the outdoor sports we love and continue to keep you informed wherever you are. That's it for this week. Until next time, see you later.